Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 136 of Control the Controllables. Today's episode brings us insight that we've all been after. You're judging yourself, your success in your job. Like, can Andy get one more degree of movement in his hip today? Oh, yeah, he did today. It, it said he got one more degree today. So that was today was a good day going tomorrow. Oh, he's lost it again. He's sore again. It's painful again. I don't think we realised the impact that was having on us as people. And that was, of course, Matt Little. Matt has been Andy Murray's S&C coach for the last 14 years. He's been in his corner as Andy Murray has won three Grand Slams, two gold medals, made it to world number one. And Matt has played a massive role, not only in his physical development, but also as a key member of that team, as a support, as a friend, as a mentor. And Matt goes into all of the detail of how that relationship has worked, the highs, the lows, and as well as how Matt managed to go from being, in his own words, an average tennis player to be working then with the world's best. I absolutely loved this conversation. Matt is an an incredible guy, very down-to-earth and humble, and and I know that you guys are going to love listening to his insights, to his stories, as much as I did speaking to him. I'm going to pass you over to Matt Little. So, Matt Little, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Brilliant. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on. I've Listen to probably, I don't know, three quarters of your episodes already. And uh, so I've, I've loved it. And I'm, I'm actually a bit nervous because uh, I've heard so many of my kind of friends on here as well. And they've all been great. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I can't tell you. I've literally got goosebumps when you've said that. Because I think when, you, when you're when you doing this and here I'm sat in, as you can see, my new microphone as well. You're my first person <laughs> with this new fancy microphone. You kind of, you sit and you have these chats and... I must admit, for me, they've been incredible for, for my own personal learning. But you you kind of forget that anybody listens to them, you know, when, when you're having the chats. And, you know, when someone like yourself, Matt, who is, is so highly regarded in the game, turns around and says that you're listening to them, it, it means a lot. So so thank you for that. I think, as I said to you off off topic and a bit of a shout out to Chris Suter, who also runs a podcast, your, you know, fantastic podcast that you did with him. And, and certainly I'd, I'd love for us to get into some more insights today. And, and yeah, starting with, as you'll know, if you've listened, I think tennis is an amazing sport and, and often people don't realize how people have got to where they've got to. You know, yeah. so you, Matt, little sat in the box as Andy wins Wimbledon. However, where where did that all start for you? Yeah, I came into the sport relatively late, actually, in my early teens with my friends. Um, we were some of the first kids to play at Sutton Junior Tennis Centre before they even built the indoor courts there. 
um, our school started accessing the centre and, um, and yeah, so we started playing down there regularly, fell in love with it and um, spent every waking moment at the, at the tennis centre. Weekends, everything at tournaments and all that stuff. I was actually not very good. So I would, I would tend to lose in the first round of most tournaments I played. But I absolutely loved it. I loved the training for it. So, yeah, I, I sort of spent many years doing that. Then I kind of, knowing that I wouldn't be able to make a living out of physically playing the sport, I, I loved the physical side of the game. So I knew from the age of 16 exactly what I wanted to do for a living. I knew I wanted to be uh, an S&C coach. That probably wasn't the title back then, but an S&C coach specifically working in tennis and just dedicating myself to that. You know, all my studies, yeah. all, of, all of my voluntary work, all that stuff, all aimed at being an S&C coach for tennis. And, and so that, that was what, how my journey started, really. And was with that, because I, I've read that with you before, were you guided into that? Was that something that, you know, someone you were inspired by somebody or, or that was just your own personal experiences that took you there? Yeah, just my personal experiences. It was just a mission. I just thought, I love this sport. I spend all day watching it, talking about it um, <clears throat> and actually hitting balls myself. You know, I, I want to work in this sport. I want to I want to have an impact on some of our best players. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I, I did my studies, carried on working at Sutton for a while with some of their um, elite juniors that were, that were starting to kind of gravitate towards the centre and then hit a bit of a plateau, I suppose, uh, at one point. So I decided to go to Australia. Um, okay. So I started emailing every coach I could, every performance centre I could in Australia and uh, went out there with a couple of hundred quid and a credit card and spent a year out there stalking as many people as I possibly could, one of whom was Mark Taylor, uh, who now you, you'll know works in the UK now. Um, yeah, and as luck would have it, Mark then moved back to moved to the UK with his wife Rebecca, and and um, was instrumental in me getting a job up at Loughborough okay. uh, when they yep. had the LTA Academy there the first time around. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, started to work there. Uh, then got the restructure. Uh, they closed the academy, so I applied for one of the roles at the National Tennis Centre, um, and was successful in that. So then I, I started working at the National Tennis Centre in men's tennis. And what was it? What was it about? I guess I'll use the word fitness. I know it's gone into SNC, but I guess <laughs> fitness, that was the, you know, you're a fitness coach yep. type at, at, at the start. What part of tennis fitness grasped you? Was it was it the movement? Was it the the coordination, the strength? What what when you were when you were looking and where did you see that you could make the impact? Yeah, I think initially, so we used to run the beat test every Sunday at the club just as a bit of fun for the kids, oddly enough. Horrible test. Um, yeah, well, oh. the thing was, because we did it every Sunday, it was a bit of a you know challenge with me and my friends who would do the best. And and it really wasn't seen as this kind of, like, oh, no, I've got to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I guess it was something that I was quite good at, you know, it was something controllable and I, I was reasonably fit and I was reasonably strong. So I quite enjoyed that side of it because I was good at it. Um, whereas perhaps the technical and tactical side and the competitive side, I was less good at. So I thought, you know what, uh, that bit's more for me, probably. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was where I got hooked again. Yeah, your your um, there's a couple of things that I've and I'll definitely pick into them on this that I use you as an example quite a bit. And, you know, we'll have we'll have a lot of I don't like the word intern. We call it young coach development scheme because we genuinely are working with the young coaches. Mm. But it's amazing how many over the years s coaches we've had at, at sort of Tennis Academy 
if you've, they've come in age 20, 21, 22, and they've got no idea what they want to do within SNC. And then they just go, well, we want to get lots of experience in lots of sports. And one of my theories has always been, and this is where I would use you as an example. I've always thought there's a real niche within tennis of having that tennis specific way of working. If you've got a bit of tennis playing as well, you know, all the better. And, and because there's not many of them out there, there certainly wasn't over the years. And I don't know, what would you say to young S&C coaches? Because in my opinion, getting it wrong is the wrong word because everyone's got their own journey. But it feels to me that they almost fluff around a bit too much rather than going, right, I'm going to be the best at that and, and that specific. And then obviously someone like yourself, your rise is a great example. No, totally agree. I mean, it's actually a part of the, the book, you know, we'll talk about it later. But one of the things I talk about is developing your niche young yeah. in your career, no matter what you do in a way, but definitely in S&C, that becoming a jack of all trades, master of none. You know, there's plenty of people who do it, but I just, I just don't agree with it. I think you pick a sport you're passionate about and drill down as far into that sport as you can. So not even just becoming an S&C coach in tennis, but becoming, I don't know, a movement specialist in S&C in tennis or a, mo a movement to the forehand specialist in, you know, because actually that's what makes people go, oh, that's the person I need to ring for that. Yeah. Uh, and then, you you know, you get invited to conferences and so on. You know, you become this global expert in a specific field. I couldn't agree with you more, Dan, that I think getting lots of experience in lots of different things, whilst it broadens you, it, I think it waters you down. Yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely agree. And I think that's, yeah, for, for those listening, I think it's great advice. And, and as we go through your journey, you know, we'll see that. And I go back, actually, I'm just back in touch with Tim Newenham. Yeah. Um, you know, he was actually doing a bit of work with one of our young players at the academy when back out in Oman. So we've, we've been having a couple of conversations. And I remember even when I was playing, it was Steve Green, Tim Newenham, and they, yeah. They are the fitness coaches in tennis. That's it. And, 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 and I remember thinking they could have any job in the world. They know like or certainly any job in the UK. And then they yeah. started working with Tim. They started working with Greg, you know, and obviously then yourself came through, Jez Green came through. And I think, you know, there's some, there's some great examples of it. Uh, but if I take you back to that time, you've, you've moved into working at Sutton. You've then gone to Australia and you've come back into working with some of the best kids. I would imagine it would be in like Evo type yeah. of era in Loughborough. Did you ever have any imposter syndrome linked to your tennis ability? Like you've been quite self depreciating on your own tennis. So now that you went into that role doing that, was there any imposter syndrome or were you able to separate the tennis and, and what you were doing professionally? Well, I think because I was so bad, no one knew that I'd ever tried. <laughs> so, so in a way, it was people are more surprised that they see me shadow swing a forehand and it doesn't look horrendous. And yeah. actually, I think there's something in that that I do believe that you need to, if you're demonstrating, I don't know, a tennis-specific movement or something, I think you need to be able to do that well um, for your credibility on the court when you're talking to players about things, I think. I agree. Um, so, so even though my my competitive standard wasn't good, I can I can hit and I can demonstrate, and um, it's also where I've got to be a little bit careful. I probably try and be a bit careful on the podcast. Is that I also because I know about tennis, 
you know, sometimes a little bit of knowledge can also be dangerous. And so, you know, I also have to manage that a little bit internally with myself to say, okay, I can see things that I think tennis wise are happening here, but I also know what hat I'm wearing as in I'm the S and C coach. And so whenever I do feel it, feel that way, actually, I, I tend to just ask a question of the tennis coach and say, is that, would I be right in thinking this or whatever? So, because yeah. it's not like, Oh, the, the fitness coach thinks he now knows about tennis and he thinks he's going to teach me all yeah. about the game. You know, it's it, it that that's also a balance that I that I think is important as well. But it is important, I think, for me to have an opinion on the tennis side from a the physical perspective of the tennis side yeah. and kind of stay stay in my lane in that way. It, but it's there is a crossover, and I think when you're working with with the right people with the right uh, way of thinking, I think it, that it works fine. You don't have any issues. But what you've described there is. From, certainly from the outside, and I've known you for many, many years, even though we haven't come across each other so much over the last few, is your strength is in your communication skills. And, and this is another one that I would say when it comes to SNC coaches that I see a lot of is you've got SNC coaches that come out of university and they want to they wanna get it all out, you know, theoretically, this is what I've learned. I'm going to, I'm going to just like, I'm going to spew my guts up of, of every little thing that I've done. And, you know, one of the bit of advice is I would always give a young S and C coach is look, it's first and foremost about people. It's about communication skills. It's about doing those things and what you've described there. And I would imagine you working with an Ivan Lendl and then Andy Murray pushing to be world number one. You've got to get that stuff pretty much on the, on the ball all the time. Yeah, I mean, you, I, I did a lot more listening than talking in those situations, but, but I was always ready for when I was being asked a question as well. You know, I was always trying to play a few moves ahead thinking, well, that someone might ask me about that. Um, but yeah, for me to, to turn up with those guys and be really pushing my agenda uh, wouldn't have been the right thing. And I think getting a feel for those situations where perhaps if I step into a, these days a session with some juniors, you know, where perhaps I have more of a platform to push my agenda more um, than I would, I'd like to think I feel that moment a little differently. And I certainly, when I was at Loughborough initially, uh, I certainly got that wrong a few times as well. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I, I used to, you know, pour over these programs with intricate details and, and late and Alfred and, and Mark and the, the team up there would kind of, they would humour me, you know, because they were experienced and didn't want to kind of douse my fire. But they also were, you know, pretty firm with me and saying, look, Matt, come on, this shouldn't be that complicated. This is what we need to improve. Let's figure out how to improve these things and then let's move on. Yeah. Um, and and it was an absolute baptism of fire. I learned, I learned everything really from those guys at the start. It was it was the paid apprenticeship yeah. that, I, uh, that I, I really needed. Yeah, because you do, you've got, and this would be my my question around an academy like that. It's you know how you do get the balance because you've got you've got delivery, you've got programming, you've got education, you've got screening, you've got testing, you've got a whole world of things that you that come under you, you know, yeah. but with numerous players as well. So how how were you able to prioritize that? Yeah. Planning is, is just massive um, and having 
long meetings about planning, but effective ones, not just meetings for the sake of meetings, but genuinely what are the programmes for each player going to look like? You know, I, I think that's massive. I think that it should be at the start of the week where you let, where you outlay, you outline a, a, the, what the week's going to look like and then almost a daily little 30 minutes of, OK, what we're going to specifically do with this player in this situation. Uh, I really don't feel that that's done particularly well in our sport. I think we kind of go day to day, kind of a bit on the car, off the cuff, a little bit, uh, not everywhere, but, you know, it's kind of turn up, see how things are. Of course, there's that element to the job. But in what I do in strength and conditioning, planning how a week flows and planning how a month and a year flows is important. Um, and, and I feel like the same should be applied a little bit on the tennis court because, you know, it's classic stuff, but if the, if the, the on-court stuff is really nails and the off-court stuff is also really nails, you know, and there's not enough rest and all of these things, if that isn't planned well at the start of the week, and we know that plan will change, but if it yeah. isn't thought about at the start of the week and at the start of each day, you're going to run into problems, especially when you're working with a lot of kids. And, yeah, um, and yeah I, I think that's something that hopefully, I'm sure a lot of academies have got a grasp of now and we spent a lot of time at Loughborough doing that um you know still still could have could have done better with it but we spent a lot of time on it and how frustrating is it on, on a similar subject and I guess this is also probably one of the reasons why being in tennis for so long you're, you're used to it now but another one I see is SNC coaches come in and say well this is this is a shambles this sport how do I <laughs> How the hell do I periodize? How do I do this? How do we how do we plan in this sport? What do you mean you're now going to Russia next week? You know, or what do you mean like this is happening? How how did you adapt to that? Is that something that you managed to adapt quite quickly to? And I guess my second question on that, Matt, is how do you now educate other SNC coaches coming into the game on that as well? It is there there is a period of getting used to it. Again, I knew I knew reasonably what tennis was like, but I didn't know what international tennis was like, and we were working with international level juniors. Um, so so yeah, the number of times that my plans got ripped up yeah. um, was pretty frustrating. But I learned pretty quickly that that you have to adapt in this sport and and you have to just get consistent work done as often as you can. Um, you know, Jez was very instrumental in in pushing. The, the training blocks side of things, you know, ring fencing weeks of the year where the physical stuff takes precedence over the tennis. Uh, and, and I feel like once you get that balance where you know you're going to get a certain number of weeks in the year where you're going to get your time to work with the players, then you can calm down a little bit in the competitive phases. Um, and you can say, well, look, okay, I know we're not going to get loads of stuff done. We're going to try and tick over and maintain while we're competing. For the next four or six weeks or whatever we'll keep doing a bit on the road but where possible but actually i'm not panicking because i know i've got a big old six weeks block coming in september where we can really get into the issues and i can get my work done i think that's where the panic comes is that if yeah. snc coaches feel like their time is forever being siphoned off and there's never a point in which their work is the priority um then someone might turn around to them and say well why aren't the players getting fitter and 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 so it's like well I, don't, I haven't had any time, so I'm, I'm not I'm not a magician. But if you know that that time is ring-fenced and it's going to be stuck to, and I always think of a six-weeker, a three-weeker, and another three-weeker, yeah. 12 weeks of physical development in the year, which is about the right time to get some adaptation as well, um, 
you, you're not panicking then when you're when you're when you're they're missing sessions because they're competing because you you know ultimately that's the whole point of doing it anyway so they compete yeah. well and, and, and do well in competition so that's where I encourage people to find the balance. And at what ages are we talking about here, Matt? So like in terms of, you know, picking those 12 weeks. Yeah. Is that, that's coming, I would imagine a little bit later because I would imagine the younger age group, you're almost just developing physically all the time. Yeah. I think when you're getting more to your 12, 13 year old players, I think, you know, um, when hormonally things are starting to change, your adaptations are starting, you're starting to notice more adaptations in your, in your work, I suppose. Uh, before that, like you say, the whole year is ultimately a physical development time, really. Uh, I mean, ultimately, I think, yep, yeah, getting the balance of, of S&C and tennis, especially in those, in those kind of teenage years where the body's changing so much, is even more crucial, you know. And, and as you'll know, I've done quite a lot of work with, monitoring external loading catapult data all of this kind of stuff and, yeah. and i listen with great interest to your podcasts listening to coaches and um uh, and players who, who've got experience and, and opinions on these things you know because i think i think we that's just such a crucial time and getting that balance right is really important. tell us a little bit more about catapult you know that's something i'm somewhat familiar with but for the mm-hmm. listeners and I guess that leads me also into any other technologies that have had the biggest impact in the involvement of S&C over the years. Yeah, I think to me, being a bit of a geek in this area, it's a bit of a holy grail for me. That So a catapult is a little device that you wear um, in a vest. You'll have seen many of the footballers and rugby players down the years in their training sessions and in matches with a vest over their, over their shirt, which has got a little device in it. And what that device tells you is um, it tells you all about the movement of that athlete in that session. So let's say I do a little forward lunge and back. That would be what Catapult would call one player load. Um, So what player load is, is just the external loading that gravity has put on my body as I'm moving around. So I lunge forward and back. There's been a load put on my body from gravity of me moving around. So at the end of a session, it spits out a number for the amount of loading that's gone on my muscles and bones during that session. It can also tell me how far I've gone, how fast I've gone, and so on. How many high-intensity accelerations I've done, all of those things, which, which, are, which are interesting. But ultimately, the one thing, the player load, is the amount of external load that's gone on on that player's body. Um, and so... What that can tell you is over time how much we are loading a, a an athlete, you know, and and this is something you know, soapbox time. I feel I feel like in in tennis we can improve on is the awesome. amount of external load we put on players' bodies. You know, I did a, we did a little a little um, experiment with the Davis Cup boys. We played Swedish handball for ten minutes, and um, and we put the catapult on and the player load was 150 player load in 10 minutes of Swedish handball. Well, that's the same amount of player load as a competitive set, as an easy competitive set, like a 6-2, set is 150 player load. Um, so before the, the, the session has even started, we've gone through a set's worth of impact loading on the ball. Wow. So when you think about that and, and a, a tennis session, a three-hour tennis session could be, uh, let's say could be up to kind of 900 player load for a three hour tennis session. Now, when you, again, when you think about that, 
a competitive set is 150 player load. A three hour tennis session is 900 player load. How many sets of tennis of impact that we put players through in a three hour tennis session, or let's say two times two hours, yep. you know, we're, we're talking a lot of loading throughout the week. And actually, when you're talking about junior players, their competitive sets are only often up to four games. So that'd be even more sets. And so, again, this isn't to finger wag or to be shouty at all, because we haven't known this data before. Yep. But I just feel like we need to be more mindful of the amount of load that we prescribe, especially in growing kids uh, and making sure that rest is in there. Light days are in there. Is a light day light? Is a heavy, is a heavy day heavy as well? Got to make sure we're pushing them. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I've gone on a bit of a ramble there, but, but no, essentially... It's fascinating. It's really important stuff. Yeah, I just think that even without an expensive device, I think we can we can monitor the loading that we put through growing kids' bodies better. Yep. Uh, we need to be more mindful of it. Uh, Andy was in an interview just uh, last week, actually. I saw it, yeah. So did he, and he was talking about, you know, they said, what's your one regret? Yep. And he said, not having more rest when I was younger. Yep. You know, I was just pushing, 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 ambitious, you know, wanting to work hard, achieve, which of course he has. But he said, you know, a lot of people said, well, would you have achieved what you've achieved if you hadn't pushed as hard? And he said, well, obviously we won't know, but I feel like I would have, I still would have, you know. And so that's a really interesting kind of It was a really interesting answer. It was actually, yeah. it was on the tip of my tongue to ask you about it because <laughs> as you're talking, it, that's what came out loud and clear because I guess there's a couple of questions I have on this, Matt, is one I think there's a perception that competition is the highest load, mm. which I, which you've dispelled, not yeah. with not with your opinion, but with fact, which I think is very important in <laughs> in, in this as well. Yeah. You know, so what are what are the highest load things that young players are doing in training that you would say tennis coaches, because not all tennis coaches one have access to catapult yeah. but also two have access to matt little or mm. or, or somebody or even an snc coach yes you know it, on, on, in in reality you know so so what sort of things should they be mindful of in training the type of exercises the type of drills that are maybe very load heavy yeah i think i'd split this into two categories really one is your your just your volume drills <clears throat> you know your two cross one lines those kinds of things your patterns um, that's quite heavy just in terms of just sheer amount of load, even though the intensity is lower because you're not moving as quickly. Just the sheer volume of load doing those things can get the numbers jumping up quite high. But then also uh, in football, they looked at the, the impact of, of the number of high intensity accelerations and decelerations because they're the ones that I think they said over about four metres a second. The, the number of times you sprint, hit the brakes and change direction they're the ones that potentially have the damage on muscle tissue, on joints, yeah. uh, on connective tissue and those type of things. So having a bit of a, a number for the number of times you move quickly out to it, out and back uh, or planning for that and monitoring that a little bit in your drills where the players are moving very quickly. I think that's also something to, to take into consideration. That's the intensity side. And then you've got just the volume side of just yeah. the sheer amount of hitting and something else that I, I've recorded a little bit with the LTA recently is, is talking about how we 
not necessarily just about the amount of volume, but how we construct tennis sessions. And this is where, again, I've got to be careful because I'm the biceps curls guy. So it's, it's not, I've got to be careful changing lanes a bit here. But in terms of how tennis sessions are constructed, it's, for me, the explosive type work, those type of acceleration, deceleration, should be the things that are done first in the tennis session. Yeah. Um, and, and then the high volume stuff pushed towards the end, you know, ubiquitously most tennis sessions that I watch start with kind of warming up and down the middle. Then you go into your crosses, your lines, your patterns, your, your high volume stuff. Um, and, and we know statistically, you know, let's say it's 80% of points are over within the first four shots, could be 70. In junior tennis, it's probably more like 50. And I know there's tactical situations, second serve points, all of those things are longer than that. So I completely accept all of that stuff. But the vast majority of stuff you're doing in a match is short and sharp. It is, yeah. So to start a tennis session with long, slow stuff is, is to me akin to saying to a 100-meter sprinter, okay, let's do a 5K and then we'll practice your starts. You know, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think of doing it, you know. And, and, and so all, all I'm saying with this, the only point I'm making is flip your tennis sessions, just flip it. Yep. Do your serve and return, serve and ball three, your explosive sprints, all of that stuff. Get all of that stuff done in your first hour, you know, and then move on to your crosses and lines and, and your volume stuff, which, you know, where, you know, you can kind of, you can get through it. Of course, the quality needs to be high. I'm not saying that it doesn't need to be good, but, 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 but the quality it, where it really counts is at the start of that session when they're fresh, which makes sense anyway. Yep. There's been some research about skill development, that's come out, um, you know, learning a new skill needs to be done without fatigue, ultimately, if yep. you're going to be successful in learning that new skill. So, again, that just makes sense, you know. So so doing that work also at the start of the session when, you're, when we're fresh and then just flipping it so we do the high-volume stuff at the end would be just just an observation from, from a physical coach. And, and <laughs> so how's, it, how's it being received? How's it being received by the, by the coaches? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's not to say everyone does things like this, but you know, it does seem to be the case. And, and I think because we've trained in a certain way for so long, probably a bit like swimming with the 5am five yeah. mile swims for people who do a 50 meter race, you know, it, it's a tough ship to turn around. I think, um, it's philosophies that have been handed down from generation to generation. I, I do see coaches embracing this, this side of things and, and, and looking and thinking about the construction of their sessions differently. Um, so so I, I, do think, I do think there is more appreciation of that. But this is where it comes into that planning of the week, whereas I feel like if a coach isn't necessarily planning their week, they're going to tend to go out and do the session that they've always, that they're just used to doing. Yep. Whereas actually, if you're planning the week with an SNC coach or without one and saying, right, I want to do some really quality speed work on Monday, Thursday and Saturday. So so this is this is how my tennis session is going to reflect speed development at the start of that session. You know, um, I'm going to make Tuesdays and Thursdays just really tough endurance stuff. We're going to do all, all of our drillings, all of our high, high volume stuff. Then the SNC coach can say, OK, <clears throat> Monday's quite light. They're going to be quite fresh. I can do my strength work that afternoon that's going to be great tuesday i know is really quite high volume quite aerobic i can top them up with a little bit more aerobic type work after that session there see how those things fit in together you know 
Wednesday, we might need a bit of a lighter day. And that's where that conversation then starts to flow. If you're thinking about it in advance, yeah, no, you know, and, and having a planning meeting in advance to say, well, this is what we need to get to. How receptive has Andy been to that sort of thing? And, and Jamie of like, you're talking about, because I, the thing with tennis players, I guess there's, tennis players love to feel don't they they love to feel the ball they love yep. to they love to feel good and and what i guess that rapid fire difficult practice of hitting a second serve receiving a really difficult sec ball three on second serve and doing something that's a little bit more short and sharp at the start of a session i would imagine a lot of tennis players put that down to a lack of feel. They are, well, I don't feel the ball yet. Is, mm. is it something you've tried to introduce in Team Murray or is he too far along his journey to make those changes now? Yeah, it depends on the day, actually. It depends where he's at, I think. Um, I, you know, I think everyone's open to that type of stuff, you know, and if they do start doing serve quite early in a session, I say, oh, there you go, Trinks, you know, we're, we're following your guidelines, you know, you, you, you know it all. So I get ripped for it, obviously. Um, but but then, yeah, there is just a way. Uh, it, 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 it comes back to what I was saying earlier about kind of imposing my philosophies on, <clears throat> on people who, are, you know, who have experience, have passionate ways of working. Um, you know, I like to think that by kind of osmosis or by just dripping these messages through over the, you know, over the weeks, months and years that, that there, that there are some practices changing. Andy's someone who loves to hit a lot of balls, loves to come off the court feeling like he's literally left it all out there. So for me to say, right, we're going to do a 30-minute tennis session today, which is going to include max flat-out running forehands with a walking recovery and then we're done, isn't really going to cut the mustard for him. Yep. Um, but I think that that's a relevant tennis session for someone who's on a light day or a speed day would be like a 45 minutes of max efforts with lots of recovery, but I, you know, you, you don't see that session done very often. No. So I'm holding hope, you know, and maybe <laughs> over time, or maybe I'll just be out of work forever. Who knows? <laughs> because look, that is, but also, I mean, you've worked with Andy now for nine, 10 years, 14, 14 years. Oh my goodness. So 14 <laughs> years. So how have you kept that fresh and, and avoided, I guess, just status quo, because in any relationship, it's not easy, you know, mm. in a relationship where I know you're not traveling as much right now, but the travel that goes into it and the demand, how have you been able to keep the freshness in that relationship? Um, time apart, <laughs> you know, say rest, same thing, you know, breaks. Um, I like to think that I, I've had reasonable feel for situations, time when to open my mouth, time when to take a little back step and listen more. I know generally how Andy's feeling without him having to say something, um, you know, in any situation, because we've been together that long. I feel like even if we're in a meeting, something gets said, I'll know how he's going to feel. Uh, we're on a court, something happens. I know how he's going to feel. So, so because I, most of the time, I get it wrong, you know, but, but most of the time I feel like I can kind of negotiate around things. And then recognise moments where, where which are coachable moments where the wind, where the door opens yep. and a question gets asked or there's a problem which I think I've got an answer to. That's when I go in heavy. I pick those moments, and the rest of the time, I skate around, listen, watch, and just try and try and help 
feel through situations. I think in, in some ways, I think I can help the rest of the team with that a little bit as well um, in being that kind of, kind of absorbing different parts of the team and their emotions and how they're feeling about different things and how Andy's feeling. I think because I've been, been there for a while, you know, I feel like I can do that quite well. Yep. So, which, is, which is a strange thing because it's, it's not an official role. You know, it's not a job title that. Um, but actually, I think it's quite an important skill set when you're working in a team to be it's that soft skills, that can, isn't it? It's that yeah. it's the soft skills that yeah. that not everyone has. <laughs> no, no, not everybody has them. You know, and the thing is, and I talk about it, and talking about the book, I'm not shamelessly plugging the book, I promise. But um, you know, there are people in life whose hard skills are so unbelievably good that people will put up with them being around anyway, even if they've got no personal skills whatsoever, because they're so good at what they do. It's like, well, look, you know, I, I need, I need that person, you know, so even if they like disrupt the team or even if they're, you know, they, they cause some stress, actually, they're so good at what they do. I need them around. Yeah. Um, but for the, for the vast majority of the rest of us who are you know, good at what we do, but you know, not necessarily, it's kind of, you've got to find a way around situations and, and not be likable, not be a sycophant, but get along to go along as well, you know, because players aren't going to put up with you very long if they, if they don't think you're good to have around. And, um, you know, it's funny, so many people said to me about, you know, how Andy is on the court, you know, look, you know, why, well, if he was like that with me or if he ever said something like that to me on the court, I'd tell him where yeah. to shove it and I'd walk off. Yeah. And all of those type things, you know, if he was displaying those behaviours to me, I wouldn't put up with that. And, I, and that's absolutely fine. I don't ever react to that. It's, everyone has their, their way. But if we did do that as a team, if we did always react emotionally, then it, it's not going to work in the team environment being that way. You know, again, probably with a, a junior player, um, I, I could be more kind of dogmatic like that and say, right, I'm not putting up with that behaviour. This isn't good, whatever. Um, but actually, you know, as a team, we've spoken about that side of things a lot, and, um, and with and Andy, work with it, yes, with so, Andy, yeah, and, oh and yeah, I mean, yeah, because I've heard Andy say he doesn't even realise he's doing it in the moment, mm. and he almost is completely embarrassed about it afterwards. But it, it, it's because it is; it's a difficult watch, and and I, and I don't know if you remember this, but 2012 Aussie Open. There, I was with Liam, Liam Brody, and Josh Ward Hibbert, and they'd won mm. the boys' doubles. And Andy kindly sent us tickets down to go and sit in his box to watch the Djokovic match, the incredible yeah. four-hour, fifty-four-minute match. And and I was literally sat direct row behind you and Ivan, mm. and and I heard every word that day, and mm. and I remember thinking, what the intensity. The intensity was unbelievable. Mm. I mean, what a privilege it was for me to, to have that experience. And, and I don't know what you think on this, actually, but I, I often tell this story that I felt we witnessed him go over a hurdle that day because mm. there was the third set and he, and he was kind of really, I can't do it, I can't do it. I've told you guys I can't do it. <laughs> and, and, and he then won the set 7-5 or 7-6. Yeah. And there was almost like this moment of like, oh my God, I can do it. Yeah. I've done it. I've beaten, and he didn't go on to win the match, but yeah. that was the year that he did go on to win the Olympics and win and, and win the U S open as well. Mm. 
but it was it was so intense. And I remember then speaking to Andy Island, maybe at, at US Open that year mm. as well. And he looked like a defeated man afterwards. You know, the law, <laughs> there was a Lopez match on Louis Armstrong, you know, and there, there was some. So what is said within the team on that? Because there is, there's some people would say, why are they like Delgi got just berated at the US Open, you know, in mm. front of millions of people on TV. Mm. So it feels like it should be addressed. Hmm. but I guess we're not in that personal world. So how is it addressed and what is the, the reason it does continue? And then how do you deal with it? Well, it's, you know, I couldn't speak for Andy in this, but you know, he, to me, it's, it's him externalizing pressure. You know, it's, it's an offload of pressure to say look, yeah. I'm in a really stressful situation. Uh, and actually we all do it in our own lives. If you're, if you're in a stressful situation, you know, you're, you're going to vent at, 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 at various Areas, you know, okay, there are other players that don't choose to do that, but there are many that do. Um, it's never personal. He never means it. As you say, he doesn't actually, you know, doesn't recognise he's doing it a lot of the time in the moment. Um, and so, you know, I think as a team, we, we've, we've squared that away, that it actually doesn't mean it. It's, it's, a, it's a coping strategy for getting through that moment. Um, I don't know whether it sometimes fires him up to, to, to play to another level as well. Um, yeah, he would have to speak for himself with regards to explaining it. But as a team, I know that that my role in the box is to support, is to unconditionally support, uh, and that's what he needs. And and for me to be, you know, broad-shouldered enough to say, okay, I know I've done my my job to my best of my ability. Um, I know I'm a good person. I know I've worked really hard. I know Andy knows this. I know Andy appreciates everything that's been done uh, and all of the work that's being done. It's, it's just a way for him to, to externalize and offload pressure. Um, and so actually we talk about it periodically, but in, in reality, so long as we're all comfortable, yep. then, then it's, then, then we move on because like yep. I say, I think to, to be forever arguing about it, to, to respond emotionally, to react emotionally, doesn't actually serve the purpose of of helping uh, and we're there to help because Maresmo Maresmo went up at the top of the stadium for one match yeah and was no, that, been was other that the reason where, well it's kind of if we're there do we are we providing a distraction potentially you know so is it is it something where we sit somewhere else and therefore there isn't a distraction for Andy um but that also just doesn't feel right because we're working all working so hard together as a team you know we should be present as a team and, and show up. You know, one of my things is, you know, in, in tough moments, show up no matter what. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's tricky for people to understand. It's tricky for external people to, to, to watch and say, well, you know, how's that right? You know, I'm sure Andy wishes he didn't do it, but it's a part of his makeup as a player. And, and as a team, we have ways in which we work with it ultimately. Yeah. You know, and that, that's the reality. My my favorite part of your podcast with Chris, and this is the second thing that I use a lot, is I say to players is if you're coming into practice or you're going into matches and you are not reflecting in advance to try and get the right mindset and to try and set your, your head in the right place for you to go and compete, then there's a problem because... There's an SNC coach that I know that 
that talked about doing that to be the supporter in the box, you know, and, and, and can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I have this kind of not mantra, but just some, some, some sentences that I have, you know, that again, that I know kind of anchor me in stressful moments, really, you know, it's, it's preparing for pressure ultimately. Um, And it's just a few very simple sentences around because I, how I know I'm going to feel, I might be feeling stressed, whether it's a tight situation in the match or whatever might be happening. And, and, and so I, I prepare by having a few sentences that I read before the match that I kind of also know that I can kind of repeat to myself during the match, which is things like, you know, I've, I've done, done the best I possibly could. He's well prepared. He's done the work, you know, it, it, just kind of grounding sentences to kind of create a bit of a, a bit of protection, a bit of defense against stress and pressure. in a way and there'd be other experts that would be far better at at, at kind of talking about this but but actually when you prepare for pressure when you prepare for eventualities that may happen you know obviously you're more equipped for them when they do and um and something i'm working with a lot of junior players now um and i talk to them about this stuff before matches all the time is you know what might happen out there today how might you be feeling and if you are feeling that way how are we going to deal with it which is coaching 101. I know it's not a massive revelation that, but actually... No, not spend, many people do it, though. The well, spe- yeah, spending a few minutes thinking about that and talking about it together as a team, yeah. I think is really important. You know, you see, we talk about players that struggle with pressure in pressure situations and, oh, they always do this and they always do that. We love putting players in a box if they just don't have it, this, that and the other. But actually, we don't really talk to them about it. So, okay, I know you're feeling under... Look, the injury one's a classic. Oh, you know, they they've claimed they've hurt their leg, you know, and that's why they lost because that's when the pressure came and all those things. Okay. If that's happening, let's have a conversation about pressure and how we deal with it. Um, You know, how you actually honestly feeling a lot of players might not feel like they can open up about this stuff as well. I might just say, no, I am injured. Um, But ultimately if it is pressure, then let's have a, rather than berating them and going, Oh yeah, that guy always does the same thing. Or that girl's always doing this. Let's let's really drill down into those behaviours and actually talk about pressure and expectation and how they're feeling because you know we see it so so much um, and actually I don't think we really do a good job of talking about it. We just see we see the you know the, what happens on the court. We see you know they talk about in medicine you're dealing with the symptoms or the cause. You know it's kind of we see the symptoms out there on the court, but let's really drill into the cause. I know sports psych's a big thing in tennis. But, yeah, I just hear it so often about players. They're obviously feeling stressed and pressure from somewhere, from someone. You know, let's get it out. Let's talk about it. Deal with it. You know. The preempt. I am... I was a relatively rubbish tennis player. I mean, when we're, we're on this podcast talking about Sir Andy Murray, I, I certainly can't claim to have any any tennis success. But the, the I did win one singles futures event, and I hardly slept during that week because I was preempting so much in my head. Actually, oh. and it was <clears throat> it was exhausting for me. And I guess me winning me winning a singles futures event was almost like me winning a grand. Certain people winning a grand slam, you know, it was kind of that that relative level. And I would go through every situation, and it wasn't just positives. It was very much what if I find myself set point down. 
What if I find myself love 30 down first game? What if I find myself? And and it was unbelievable how much it helped me, you know, and, and that ability. And I, I, it's something I've certainly taken into my coaching and not in a negative you know, but let's preempt the things that could potentially go wrong. Um, because, then like exactly what you said, you then you're much more mentally prepared to do it. And and I think your example there doing that in the box as a supporter is, is really powerful. I mean, the more I work with junior players at the moment, <clears throat> I really want, I want to get them clear on their processes on the court. Like, what are your process goals? You know, is it to be up in the point after serving ball three or whatever? What are your process goals? Be, be so crystal clear on those yeah. before you even step out there. Now, if you're then feeling nerves, you go back to your process goals. Go back to the processes that you're supposed to be achieving because generally nerves are about outcome, generally. Yep. you know. So, so cut that out. Go back to my processes. Have them on a notes in, in your bag. Okay, I want to be up in the point after ball three on my serve as often as possible. When you start to go back to process, I think, having been an even worse, much worse tennis player than you I think that that is what helps is, 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 is going back to your process, but being crystal clear on your process first yeah. before you go out Absolutely. there. I mean, it, it, SNC, it's easy. Okay. What we're working on today. Okay. We're working on strength. Why want to get stronger in these particular movements, want to get better on the court by being stronger. This is going to help, you know, but being so clear on the on court um, objectives, it's in terms of process goals. Uh, I, when I've spoken to a lot of juniors about that uh, and made sure they're really clear on it, I'm not telling them their process goals. I just want yeah, to yeah. make sure they are clear on what yeah. they are um, and, re- and reviewing those after a match as well. How well did you do those things? Win or lose, okay. You, you know, but actually, I, I think that helps with nerves. I think it gets rid oh, of nerves. Massively. Yeah, we talk about mental toughness, our definition of mental toughness is your ability to commit to something helpful. So commit to your process, no matter how you feel. Yeah. And and ultimately, Andy Murray serving 2013 Wimbledon <laughs> final yeah. against Novak Djokovic, where I think we can all feel every hair on the back of our neck stand up in, in that moment. You know, I could remember I couldn't even sit down I was just like a, a nervous wreck walking around my parents' <laughs> house. You know, how how he was able to, and, and I'm sure at that moment, he had something in place that he was able to commit to something helpful. You know, yeah. and if, if, if you're not able to commit to something helpful, then that's when you, you're you showcasing some form of mental weakness, you know, and I think, you know, that, that for me, and I would just love... I would love for us to, that's the one thing. And, and as you would have heard on the pod, I'd, one day I'd love to get Andy on the pod. Mm. And, and that would be the big moment I'd love to hear about. You know, that, that moment of, of doing that, of, of, of the, the relief that he felt afterwards and every emotion in the whole world that he had on his shoulders. Is there yeah. any, any insight you can give to us how he, how he spoke about that moment after, after that final? I mean... Honestly, we barely saw him after that final, to be honest. <laughs> he, he, got, he, he got changed. He had to then go, go and do all of his media commitments and put his suit on. And then he was sat at a table with, uh, with all the dignitaries and stuff. We barely saw him after that, match. Right, but right. I, did, I did read about it, funnily enough. And, uh, and he said his arm was shaking. His arm was physically shaking when he, when he hit that serve, which I just can't hit again. Of course, I can't imagine it. 
I don't think anyone, no matter what your level, can actually imagine that that situation. You know, I, I kind of go back to thinking about well, obviously Emma's amazing, you know, serving it out with an ace um, the other week, but also when Andy won the Olympics in 2012, he served that out with an ace as well. Yeah. And so just thinking, wow, just again, ability to deliver that process, that kind of skill at that level with that amount on it. Um, yeah. I don't think mere mortals can understand no, it. No, I certainly no, no, can't. not at all. I want to, I want to just touch on a couple of things and then I, I do what I want to hear. I, I have to admit, I've not had a chance to read your book yet, but I, I will. And it's absolutely on my list, Matt. You know, it's, I, I love the concept of it and I want to get into that a little bit more, but if we, one of the things in tennis and you would have again on the pod, we've talked about this quite a bit. If, if we're Chelsea football Academy, we've got the power because we're bringing players into our academy and they're desperate to be a part of the academy. So there's a, there's a, there's a power, there's a power mm. that a, a voice that, that, that we have as coaches, you know, you as an S and C coach working with someone who's gone on to be the world's best tennis player. How have you now, you've obviously found your voice over 14 years, but how, how were you able to find your voice at first when there's, that feeling of right, oh, I'm in this position. I've got the I've got the golden ball. Don't drop it. You know it, how 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 have you managed to get the right the right power in that relationship? Time, simple as that. I I recognised when I was first in the team. This is something I think it's important for everyone on their career journeys to to, to recognise. I recognised where I was at in my journey at the start when I was working with Andy, which was you know I was you know, becoming kind of, I suppose, more recognised in S&C, in tennis, in the UK. Um, you know, I, I was confident in working with, with players. Um, I felt like I knew my stuff by then. Um, but when I went into Team Murray in 2007, I was very much the junior in that team. What skills did I have to bring? Well, obviously, I had some, I had some skills in my job, some hard skills in my job, but I had energy I had a sense of humor. I had enthusiasm, boundless enthusiasm. Um, you know, so those were the skills that I bought at that time. My, my expertise, whilst it was required, wasn't the primary reason for me being there. It was to be that person. And so I utilized that, that set of skills to as, as much as possible. And I think I did a really good job in that aspect of the job. As time went on, within the team, I suppose my, my expertise became more required, my sense of humour less required, still required, but less so, and my energy and all those things I bought in the, in the, in the initial stages, it changed, you know, to, to uh, over time, uh, to, where, to a point where, you know, probably in, I don't know, 2016, 2017, it was more, it was more about me, the S&C coach, uh, and and me kind of helping with the team and all of those kind of, not managing the teams but, but 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 that kind of work that aspect of the job rather than being the energizer being the enthusiasm and being being the kind of uh, so so I feel like that's it's it's changed over time uh, and if I'd rushed that if I'd turned yeah. up day one again being the ju- the junior in the team and saying right bang here's my expertise Jez this is how we're going to do the S and C Louis Kaye, this is my opinion on the tennis, Miles McLaggen, this is what we're going to be doing on court as well. You know, again, it'd be like, 
what? <laughs> Who's this guy? Who's this guy? <laughs> but actually knowing that, being honest with myself, going, okay, this is what I bring. What can I be good at? How can I lead in my own little way here? Well, I can be the leader in the energy and I can be the leader in the teamship and, and, and all of yeah. that stuff. And so I think that's important for people to recognize where genuinely, where am I? Because I think that's yeah. where things go wrong is where people think perhaps they've got that little bit more experience and expertise than they necessarily have in that moment. Yep. They can come a bit unstuck. I think that's where, you know, you need that bit of humility to say, well, okay, how many years have I genuinely, how many years have been doing this, you know? So I think that's, I think that's important. And how honest are the conversations that you and Andy would have? Is there, is there ever a conversation where you would ask him what, what he wants from you or would he deliver that as well? A few times down the years, I think, especially when things have needed to change, there's been a conversation. Okay, well, what do you, yeah, exactly that. What, what is it, your, what are your expectations of us? Yep. You know, here's our expectations of you. What are your expectations of us? How can we deliver better for you? now these days you know because i think that it does change doesn't it so yeah i, I think i think we, we've occasionally had those conversations but again another another thing that i can't get away from is this feel for situations this yeah, feeling yeah. feeling where he's at feeling what does he really want from me today does he want a, a low does he want to hear the latest paper on on strength and conditioning that's been published or does he want to chat about you know, the football at the weekend with a little bit dropped in there about some S&C stuff as well. You know, whereas other days, he's going to definitely want to hear what that research is and he's going to definitely want to hear what the latest technology is saying and, and the monitoring of his loading and all of those things, you know. So I think, I've, I think I've adjusted and felt that down the years as well as having yeah. less formal conversations about it, I'd say. Because yeah. the, the other bit that always... I always watched and look, I'm a massive tennis fan, you know, and I'm fortunate enough to be involved in tennis. And I'm also, even though, and I, this is the other thing, if I ever get Andy on, I will talk about the times that we managed to kick his backside on the doubles court many a year ago, you know, with, you know, he can, he could probably uh, showcase a lot more than that, but that's my one little thing, but I'm also a massive Andy Murray fan. You know, I really have, have learned to, I mean, I admire him, unbelievable amounts you know one for what he's achieved as a as a tennis player but two also for what his voice off the court you know I think his work with equality the 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 the, the way that he speaks now I think I I really do you know admire him on on many levels and and that 2016 period you know, which I, I watched, like, I, I don't think I missed a match, you know, it was like, I've, we've got, I've got to watch Andy because you could feel, you could feel what was happening and you could feel that he was nothing else in the world mattered. He was, he was going after that number one spot and, and it, it was, you know, it was, it was coming closer and closer. Obviously he started playing a few extra tournaments as well. You know, I would imagine as the team, how was, the demand, I guess there's a demand working with Andy Murray anyway, but that particular time felt like there was a real high intensity and demand on, on you and the team. So how did you manage to just go with that? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think it was about 8,000 points behind Novak at once. I think in March, about 8,000 points behind. It was incredible. When, when he gets on a roll in tournaments and in matches week to week, it kind of flows quite easily, actually. Yeah. 
you know, the demands of it, actually, everyone's on point. Everyone's on the same page. It's just match to match to match, finish that tournament week to week to week. And actually, it flowed beautifully. You know, and I suppose maybe there's a secret in that. So there was, you know, there was tough things, of course, in that time. But but there weren't like huge problems that we had to kind of fix and kind of, you know, untangle. It just everything flowed. Uh, and, and so actually the work was was relatively easy because we weren't really. Andy was bringing everything to the table. We were kind of prepping for matches, recovering from matches, prepping for the next match, tournament to tournament, week to week. Um and so from that side, of course, the, the process of him fighting for this, for these points, you know, would have been very incredibly stressful for Andy to physically be going through that. But actually, you know, from a support team member, it was it was a relatively, relatively simple process, right, okay. uh, you know, which which so Andy would have found it incredibly stressful and hard. But actually, for us, we were in our routine. Actually, everything was kind of flowing pretty, pretty easily. So I guess if I flip that, then the opposite to being on floor and winning every match <laughs> and becoming world number one is having continuous injuries, not sure if you're ever going to play the sport again. You know, it's almost the, the exact opposite. So was that the big challenging time? Massively for us as a support staff, especially, of course, for Andy as well, not being able to do what he loves. Um, watching all of the other players have success, all of those things. Um, but I think, I mean, we went through a three or four year spell there, you know, and, and in some ways are still going through it, you know, of this of this kind of relentless kind of fight for health with him, you know, with his body. And particularly in, in the first few years where he couldn't play, you know, I think only in hindsight, looking back and watching the documentary, resurfacing you realize just how how tough that time was um and it was really nice actually to take our families to watch the documentary at the cinema because then our wives and our families could actually see what we've been going through uh and it's not a poor me situation but it's just you know you're you're judging yourself your success in your job like can andy get one more degree of movement in his hip today Oh yeah, he did today. It, it said he got one more degree today. So that was today was a good day. Going tomorrow, oh, he's lost it again. He's sore again. It's painful again. You know, I don't think we realised the impact that was having on us as people. Yeah, yeah. And certainly our our families have since told all of us who were working in the team at the time just how kind of this constant cloud yeah. uh, was over us. Um, you know, and so yeah, just amazing, really. Um, tough times to go to go through but again for me incredible incredible learning experience journey watching andy's dedication his attention to detail on the most boring of exercises day to day was as i'm sure you would imagine absolutely on point every single session for, for years yeah. you know arduous hard training did he ever in- lose motivation uh was there ever a moment that you thought, shit, I think he's done here. I'm not sure he's oh. got it in him. I mean, there's there was plenty of times when we would thought that, you know, God, right. how much more can he put up with here? You know, yeah. I mean, obviously when he, you know, just before the, the press conference in Australia where, you know, we, we did think he was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we'd had some moments before that, you know, we'd had some conversations which were very emotional. 
not immediately before that conference, but, you know, in, in the kind of months leading up, it was a very, very, very dark time. Um, and so, yeah, I, there was plenty of times when I thought, I'm just not sure how much more he can take of this. I, I still wonder, it's, I still marvel at how much more he can put his body through. It's, it's, you know, and then to go out and win Antwerp was just like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? They've got to Andy make a movie on that. They've got, to, <laughs> they've got to make a movie on that one day. Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, people ask me, oh, you know, is keep, why is he still going? What's, you know, and I'm like, he can still win things. <laughs> you know, he's that good. Well, watching him last week, <laughs> quarterfinalist, lost, lost to her cats pretty closely. Mm. It, it almost feels he's getting closer to mm. being in the rhythm of being a tennis player again, mm. you know, rather than maybe, okay, getting a wild card in a big event and is he going to make it? And mm. he's maybe made it, he's maybe not. Mm. He's almost gone a bit quiet. Mm. It's, it's almost kind of happening now. He's, he's playing the tournaments and obviously touch wood, that's going to continue. Mm. Uh, but that in itself is just a, a testament one to obviously Andy, but also to you and the team around him. It really is. Yeah, his 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 fortitude and his consistent high effort, his ability to just keep going. Uh, I'll, I'll yeah, I'm in I'm in amazement constantly. Um, I respect him hugely, physically seeing everything that he's been through, yeah. uh, and the emotional roller coaster of it all as well, and and that of his family as well. You know, it's it's it's, it's tough. It's been yeah. it's been a really tough road he's been on, and they've all been on. But yeah, I just, just never count him out. I, I can't make predictions, but my goodness me, you know, with Andy, any literally anything is possible. Yeah, absolutely. And where's your role now sit within that map? So obviously, you you I don't believe you've been traveling as much as mm. as you previously were, but still, I guess responsible for for his. Physical development's probably the wrong word now, you know, but physical maintenance and and looking after him in that way. Where does that role sit? Yeah, I mean, he's he's brought in other experts as well. Um, so there's a chap called James Moore who's very very highly respected um, physio and S and C coach um, that's that's helping the team. So again, my my role really is to is to sit back and help and facilitate and and be enthusiastic in the right times and the right moments and just be that little one step kind of removed and help deliver. Um, but, but be a facilitator really. And, and kind of, you know, COVID was tough because obviously, obviously for everyone, but um, players couldn't travel with their, with their full teams, two people max. So obviously coaching it, coaching physio, the first ones on the bus, which is absolutely fine. Um, you know, tennis Australia were, were paying players to not bring people, to the tournament, um, which, you know, again, I completely understand the principle of that, but, but my job is as the SNC coach, you know, that's, it, it's had an impact on my life in that way. Um, you know, I, I've diversified and I'm doing online programs for, for players and things now, which, which for me has been a, a fantastic journey, but, but things have changed quite a bit for me actually in the last kind of last few years, but I'm still very much, you know, I, I'd like to hope I'm still part, part of the furniture with Andy's team and, and so long as so long as he he needs me and wants me, I'm I'm turning up every day, and probably I'll turn up even if he doesn't want me, because um, that's just <laughs> that's just me, and that's the journey I you know that I, I'm on with Andy is that you know whenever he picks up the phone, I'm I'm there, you know. 
And how's that transition been for you personally to, I guess, be so engrossed in a, in a going from tournament to tournament, right? Preparation for the next tournament, you know, pushing to win grand slams, doing this. And then obviously, I guess, having that high level of purpose to try and get them back on a tennis court. How have you found that having a bit more headspace, a bit more time, a bit more time with the family, I guess a bit of a difficulty, difficulty yeah. and blessing to have for them to have more time with you as well. How's, how's that transition been? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, my, my wife probably realizes who she actually married now. Yeah. I'm, I'm home a bit more. Um, but uh, it, it, that's, I've got a young son and, and so that's been a real, a real blessing to be with him, especially through this period of uncertainty and everyone and stress for everybody as you know everyone's had difficult times so to have daddy at home has been big and so I've made sure that I've made the most of of the personal goals and I think you've got to look at different types of goals through your life you know through your different areas of your career there's going to be a time probably in my career where the travel will go will come back again you know perhaps when my son's a little older you know so then I can perhaps drill into the goals to do with that a little bit more but I've been perhaps focused a little more on personal goals making sure my family are happy and, and, and healthy and looked after as well. And like I say, in diversifying what I do, challenging myself in different ways to, to, to develop different skills and, and adapt what I do. And that's been, it's been a really, really fascinating process, which I've, which I've loved as well. And one of the areas you've transitioned into is, I don't know whether to call you Roald Dahl, Enid Blyton, you know, but you, you've moved into the, the world of, of journalism, writing, writing a book, uh, The Way of the Tortoise, uh, which, again, I have obviously follow you on social medias and I've, I've, I've followed that concept with you in a while, for a while, you know, it's something you've, you've kind of dropped in over the last few years. Um, but can you explain to the listeners what the book's about and give us the philosophies behind it. Yeah. So, I mean, a bit cheesy, but uh, I don't know, probably five, six years ago, I was kind of thinking, well, what if I wasn't here anymore, what would I want my son to know about me and what I thought about life and how to achieve things in life? So I started to write a few notes on my phone um, and notes turned into pages. Uh, and I thought, okay, it's a bit of a, could be a bit of a book here threw it out to a few publishers and got a few, got a bit of interest. So then kind of the ball got rolling. Um, and so, but even, even the book in itself has had its own sort of tortoise journey. It's taken about five years to get the thing on the shelves with different things happening. Uh, but ultimately the principle of the book is essentially that the true lasting success takes a very long time to develop. If I've had any success in my life, it's come slowly. Um, and that that's actually a good thing. And that's the right thing, because I feel like in, you know, when I've had my shot at success, I've been able to take it and I've had the skill sets required to make that success sustainable. Whereas I feel like the modern world celebrates very quickly achieved success. You know, people who shoot to stardom very quickly. And of course, that's attention that attracts attention, that side of things. Um, you know, the 20-year-old driving a Lamborghini on Instagram kind of thing, you know, that society now wants Instant to achieve. gratification, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and, that's, and that comes through when I speak to sometimes young graduates who say, well, I want to work with an Andy Murray. And my answer is, great, it's going to take you at least 10 years to even be in a position to work with someone like that and probably another 10 to be successful in that job. So I hope you're ready for that journey. 
and what's your mindset like, what's your values going to be like for that journey. So that's the initial principle of, of, of the fact that it, it takes a long time in my view, but that's a good thing because you are, you are armed for those situations when they, when they come. And then the, the second half of the book is more about the skill sets required, the soft skills that we've talked about already um, on, the, on the podcast that, that I don't think we, we talk about in our training courses and in our educational system very well. I don't think we deal with that side of things very well because actually for me, it's not the how to do, it's how to be that makes a difference. It really is. And so, you know, posing scenarios, thinking about principles of, of soft skills and how to be in certain situations, like we talked about how to deal with pressure, how to deal with success, failure, how to manage change, uh, how to be a good team player, all of these things, but not the, not the, not the formal side of it, but the informal feel side of it, I think has been is something that I wanted to get across to, to people who are starting a journey in their lives. Very good. And, and how's the response been so far? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, first and foremost, I'm proud of it. It's something that I suppose you kind of, for your own legacy, as I said at the outset, it's something that's been important to me to get it out there. I actually don't know how well it's sold. I'm sure it's sold billions, you know, uh, and the check will be arriving in minutes. But um, no, I'm not sure. But, I th- you know, I, um, I'm really, really glad I've done it. And, and, and off the back of that as well, so many other things, you know, um, it's taking me in another route of mentoring people, of helping business and helping other people. And, and actually, I'm getting such a buzz, you know, genuinely such a buzz from helping people from all walks of life in their journeys. You know, I always notice when I come off of a call with someone who I'm helping, I just, I, you know, I just feel really energised and really talkative and I've got this adrenaline rush. So, you know, it is, I think in life, we've all got to sort of challenge ourselves to diversify as you have done so fantastically with this, with this forum. Um, it's just, and it's exciting, you know, of course we find our bread and butter, our meat and potatoes exciting as well. Of course, I, you know, I go in and, and still pinch myself that I'm stood on the court with Andy Murray, you know, and stood in a gym with Andy Murray and I'm, I've, I've been a part of the journey, but, um, but those new challenges, are, 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 you know, are, are pretty exciting as well. And I've got, I've got three, We've got we've got the quick fire coming up, but I've added a little bit in for this. This is called the what's what's next round. Okay. And my first question is what's next for SNC? Because it's still relatively young. You know, obviously mm. I think catapult and, and this data, I mean, I get so excited hearing that, you know, like that's I'm not a data geek as such, but I I I am a big believer in us bringing in objective measures to be able to ultimately help us improve uh, and yeah. develop the sport. Um, so what what's next? How does how does S and C evolve over the next ten or fifteen years? Oh, good question. I mean, I do think the wearable tech side of things and and our understanding of what's actually happening to the body on on the court or on the pitch is, is going to improve. I think that's where the strength and conditioning side of things is going, that, that we will get genuine facts about what's happening out there and therefore we can program around that. I think the cognitive side of things is going to be big actually, because I don't think we've tapped into the brain and how to manipulate in a way the brain and yep. its power to therefore impact the body. Yep. Ikesh um, Viontek, 
who I'm sorry to podcast regular podcast listeners. I know I mention a lot, her a lot, but when she was at the Academy for a couple of weeks before Madrid mm. early in the year, it was incredible how much of that she was doing. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I, yeah, I, I think we probably don't even know what's possible, but I think by, by, like I say, manipulating the brain and I've, I've, I've got no idea how this is done. <laughs> so I feel like that's a hugely untapped area of, of our roles. I think that'll be something that all of a sudden there'll just be these massive floodgates that open and, and, and we'll be like, Oh, wow, we did, how did we not know this? Um, you know, I think that's, that's due to happen in terms of the cognition and that side. Yep. But yeah, I, the wearable tech stuff for me is the, is interesting because like I say, at last we're not guessing about what's happening yep. out there. We're actually getting numbers uh, and we can just be, we can just move things closer to, the actual demands of what we're asking these athletes to do. What's next for Andy Murray? <laughs> uh, I don't see him stopping anytime soon. He's he's as determined as ever. He's yeah. He's obviously as competitive as ever. Yeah. So I I don't know. Um, lots more tennis as far as the eye can see from from my perspective with him. Um, yeah. There's nothing in any of his conversations with us that indicate that he's just going to he's just going to keep going and keep going, you know, and uh, he's six and, years yeah. younger than Roger Federer. <laughs> exactly. You know, what's to, what's to worry about. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, and, and look, it's great again, great for me to just continue to be a part of that journey. I'm just yeah, very, very lucky to, to be around and, and to have watched and learned from him from so many years. And so, um, yeah, I think more tennis for, for Andy Murray, simple as that. And what's next for Matt Little? Well, yeah, continue to be to be part of Andy's team, but but like I say, I, I'm, I'm diversifying. You know, the book, the mentoring side of things, I think, is really interesting for me. Um, I, I'm really enjoying kind of getting back into the kind of the, the junior tennis side of things and, and working with some some of our better juniors and, and helping them develop. But I like I, I feel I feel like I'm. I'm doing more than just the training program side of things now. I feel like I'm, I'm helping them organize themselves really as yeah. much as anything and, and just make sure all their ducks are in a row because there's so many things that I've seen down the years outside of the gym that impact on performance from a physical perspective and a mental perspective. There's so much other noise and there's so many other things going on that I think dealing with all of that stuff first gives you then the chance to get some performance and get some good training done yeah. um, and start, like I said, in 2016, to have that kind of flow to what you're doing because there's less noise. Everything's very simple and straightforward. Um, so helping people sort those situations out for themselves, I think is, is a big part of my role. And, and Andy's given me this, again, given me this credibility to be able to do that, you know, and, and, and again, for that, I'll be grateful forever too. Matt, before we go into the quick fire round, I just want to say a massive thank you, like to, to come on and, you know, so, so humbly share your story, you know, and I think that's the, that's the big thing for me here as well. You know, there's so many people in this tennis world there, they coach a kid who wins the under 14 Grand Prix and they walk around as if, as if they own the place and, and they can talk down at a certain level to people. And, you know, you've genuinely been, involved and not just involved played a massive part 
with, in my opinion, the greatest ever male athlete in Great Britain. You know, we're not even, we're going outside of, outside of tennis here. You know, he, he, he genuinely is, you know, the, the work that you've done with him and, and, and the story that you've gone on, gone, gone on to get there is massively inspirational. I think the way that you talk about it, the way in, in like I say, the humble way that you talk about it, there's so many amazing things for people to learn. Um, for As a tennis fan, as a British tennis fan, a big thank you to you as well for everything that you've done and, and brought to the game and being such a part of that journey we've all been on. You know, I think every single one of us is thankful for what tennis gives us, but to have had Andy Murray's journey in there as, as such a massive part of that will we'll always sit in that timeline of our lives as well. Um, so thank you for coming on to the podcast to share that. No, listen, thanks so much for having me and, um, and keep doing what you're doing because, I mean, I've been in the car with players and I've said, right, you've got to listen to this podcast, listen to what this player has said about this or listen to what this coach says about this. The, the ripple effect of what you're doing is so much bigger than you probably realise, that the number of people you're impacting and, and kind of influencing is so much bigger than probably even the community of listeners that you, you have. And so congratulations for that and, and just, just keep going because I just I love hearing all the stories. And like I say, a lot of my close friends have been on and it's just even getting the chance to hear their stories, giving them a platform, just, I just love it. And so... Um, Hence my nerves coming on today because I just um, what you're doing is is really meaningful. So thanks, Dan. Cheers, Pat. Quick fire. Are you ready? I don't think so, but let's give it a go. Gym or track? <laughs> Gym. <laughs> Your favorite Grand Slam? We're always arguing about this. Um, Got to be Wimbledon. But you think in Australia, aren't you? <laughs> Mind reader. <laughs> Roll doll or Enid Blyton? <laughs> Roll doll. <laughs> and hard hardback or Kindle? Oh, I like hardback. You, well, you want to you want to feel that book I in the hand. Feel it, yeah. Medical timeout or not? <sighs> medical timeout. How many medical timeouts would you One. say Andy has? Oh, sorry. That Andy has had on average per year. <sighs> Almost none. I mean... That's what none. I'm saying, though. Not very often. Yeah. But when they're needed, you know, I think it's good to have the facility to have it when it's genuinely needed. Of course, there's, you know, there's manipulators of rules, but when it's genuinely needed and it can help someone, then, then I think they should at least be given the chance to have it, and if they can't continue, at least they've, they've, they know that they tried. Toilet bricks or not? <laughs> Short ones. <laughs> yeah, much shorter ones. Not 45 minutes as you could take right now if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, there has to, there has to be a rule on that. There's got to be a rule. I don't care what it is, just make a rule. There has to be something. Mobility or stretching? Um, mobility. Your favourite ever Andy Murray moment? Wow, no one's ever asked me that, I don't think. Um, I'm going to say the bicep curl, the bicep pose against Gasco. That was the, the coming of Andy Murray, wasn't it? Like onto, <laughs> onto, a, onto a new level. Well, you know, yeah, it had so much meaning yeah. behind it. 
yeah, from a physical perspective, you know, Jez and, and I worked really hard on that. And um, and so when he did that, it felt it it felt like acknowledgement of of the hard work that that had been put in. And um, so that was a yeah, that was a that was a great great moment. That. It's a great memory. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. I was at the GB Japan match in Birmingham and I, I saw firsthand your energy. You must be knackered at the end of Davis Cup weekends. I get generally ill and have had no voice on the Monday. Yeah. And, and as, as have most of the rest of the support staff, but I always get sick after a Davis Cup week, but it's worth it. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? Yeah. I'd be remiss not to go back to the toilet breaks, but um, I think get rid of the warm up at the start. A lot of guests have said that. Get rid of the warm up at the start as well, straight in. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Uh, there's a few actually. Um, have you had Have you had Danny Valverde on yet? No. Danny'd be one. Jill Myberg would be another one. She's the female SNC coach of Joe Conta. Um, but has worked in British tennis for many years. Yeah. Very, uh, yeah, very good practitioner. And it'd be great to just hear from a, a female SNC coach, their perspective on, on things as well. Um, and Hugh, Hughesy maybe as well, try and get Hugh, Ian Hughes on. I don't know if he'll do it. Oh, that was the other one. Leighton Alfred. Got to get Leighton on. Yes. His passion for the game is unrivaled uh, and even yeah. though he's not working in the game right now which is a huge loss Massive. in my opinion to British tennis just just, just getting back on because he's a quick, quick Leighton Alfred story I played I played Mark Hilton in the <laughs> final of a British tour in uh, and it was in Birmingham so at the time my now wife she lives in Birmingham her parents came to watch me in the final you know, trying to, you know, we were boyfriend, girlfriend at the time, you know, impress them. And Hiltz doffed me up in the final in front of, <laughs> in front of, you know, my potential new family. Um, so there was an added extra feeling that I had at the end of that final of not being happy. And Leighton was there. He was coaching Hiltz at the time. And he came up to me and he said, uh, played bloody well there, didn't he, Dan? He said, uh, tell him, tell him how well he played. Go on, go on, Dan, tell him. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Like, he's just doffed me up three and two. Like, this is not the moment, Leighton. You, you know, talking about reading the right moment to, to have these conversations. But I always wished he, he was coaching me because he had that that positive energy that he had was was incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm incredible. so lucky to spend five years with him at Loughborough. Um, and just, I even started to speak like him. I started to act like him. You know how like kind of people influence you in that yeah, way. Yeah. Like people actually had to have a word with me when I stopped working and say, Matt, like be yourself. You're, you're literally talking exactly like Leighton talks because he's so influential because he was just what an energy and what Unreal. passion he had. It's just honestly, I, yeah. Let's, let's he, get him on. The listeners I know are going, come on, say Andy, say Andy. Now, <laughs> We've tried, we've tried every route. We've tried agents. We've tried all sorts of routes. So yeah. Matt, at some point, that's going to have to be something you're going to have to slip in there. I'll take responsibility. I'll step up and do it. Just 20 <laughs> minutes. He doesn't even need to give us more than that. Uh, Matt, to, to echo my points before, thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. You're, you're welcome. And thanks for having me on.
As always, a big thank you for listening to everyone out there and my usual plea of, of liking, rating, reviewing. I'm going to get that in early this week. Um, but yeah, I don't want to go on about that too much other than to say what an amazing, lovely guy Matt Little is. And as always, I've got Vicky next to me to unpack what we've just heard. And there's a lot to unpack again today. There really is. I mean, two things for me jumped out. Firstly, what a cool job. He's had an unbelievable ride the last 14 years. And and secondly, as an Andy Murray fan, how many memories that just brought up listening to all his stories, the highs, the lows. I loved what he said about his favourite memory. The bicep pose, the big roar he did with his bicep during the Richard Gasquet match. That was such an iconic moment. I remember we talked about it loads at the time. I've actually just seen tonight on Twitter um, loads of GIFs, GIFs, I never know how to say it. We'll call them videos of that moment. Um, Andy Murray roaring, pointing at his bicep with people saying that's what Twitter are doing with Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram all being down. Um, so when was it? Like, you know, that's a good while ago now. Was it 2008? Yeah, it was 2008 because I remember Andy was struggling with cramp. I think it was the year before at Queen's Club. You know, there was a lot made about his physical state. He wasn't able to, to to win long matches. He had the ability, but he didn't have the physical development yet to, to be able to go through. So for him to win that match from two sets to love down again against Richard Gasquet. At Wimbledon. At Wimbledon to move into the quarterfinals, I think was a was a big moment for Matt and, and the team behind Andy because you were ultimately going to be judged on his physical development. And, and I know Matt spoke a lot about the soft skills and Matt's definitely got those in abundance. And that's why he is as good as he is at his job in so many ways, but he will still always be judged on results and physical results. And for him to be able to see that hard work that Andy's put in, you know, for him to get some validation of the work that himself and Jez Green at the time have put in, I think that was a very symbolic moment for them as SNC coaches. I mean, he talked about it a lot, didn't he? Andy's dedication, his hard work, and he, he's not just working hard in one session or for one week or for one month. It's every session, every time, year after year. And that is not the norm. It's an anomaly. And it'd be really interesting. I mean, Andy will stop at some point and if Matt works one-on-one -on -one again with a player in the future it's going to be interesting how he gets on with someone who maybe doesn't have well most likely won't have that same relentlessness and attention to detail that he was describing I mean we saw it in the documentary resurfacing it's almost superhuman like I mean the flip side of that is also the player that's some pretty enormous shoes to fill yeah no I think I think it's a good point and I think Jez Green actually touched on it in the episode that he did with us after working with Andy and, and then going and he's now or was working with Alexander Zverev. Just the differences, you know, Jez tried not to give too many things away, but you could you could feel it. You know, the difference between Andy Murray, one of the greatest British athletes of all time and the dedication that he has to then working with the new culture that comes I think with a lot of these young guys he was saying he, he, if he turned his back Zverev wasn't quite doing the exercise right 
I think the culture around bedtimes, the culture around nutrition, you know, all of these things, Andy really has been the perfect person to, to work with. And I think that'll be very difficult for Matt, but I also, I'm not sure I can see Matt Little having a relationship as special as that again. It's a, it's a lifetime relationship. You know, we're talking 14 years and ongoing. You know, Andy is certainly showing signs he's going to be going for another two or three years at least you know, and, and showing that determination. And I'm sure Matt will have a big impact on many players over the years, but I don't think we can expect that he's going to jump in and have an, another Andy Murray-type relationship again. Yeah, but I guess the beauty of the relationship is you've said um, Andy Murray is the perfect person for Matt, but Matt's also argue, arguably been the perfect person for Andy for all these years as well. Yeah, not completely. And I think he's been the ying to Andy's yang, hasn't he? You know, I think Andy's obviously been highly stressed over the years, you know, on the emotional side, whereas you just need to spend a little bit of time with Matt to see that he has that incredible ability to just allow that to happen, to let that flow, and then to be there at, at, any, at any moment. And, you know, one thing I'd certainly like to, to talk about and give a shout out to all of those coaches and fitness coaches over around the world is is the dedication that that they give they're pretty much giving their lives up to enhance somebody else's you know and, and I don't think that should be underplayed you know if we think about where Matt would have been over the last 14 years and and actually I would like to to share a little story here that Carl, Carl Mize, who's the new performance director at Soto Tennis Academy, he was telling me the other day that one of the first ever trips that he went on with Matt as, as a new member of the LTA team, and as they were having their discussion on the plane home about how things have gone, personal development plans, you know, Matt quite candidly just sat there and said, I... I'll be working with the world's best tennis player. Oh, really? And, and that was in his very early stages. And obviously Matt did talk to us there about, and we had a discussion on the importance of, of drilling into a niche area. And, you know, Matt's dedication and Matt's commitment to being the best in the world at what he does, working with the best, is 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 as impressive as, as somebody like Andy Murray who's gone and done it as a tennis player and, and I think there's a great lesson in there for everybody out there you know if you can get that clear purpose you can have that real clear vision of what you want to do want to achieve then why not why not go and get it just like just like Matt's done yeah you could argue I guess that he was really fortunate that from a young age he knew that his niche would be tennis you know he's got that passion but I thought that was great advice for young S&C coaches out there particularly those that want to go into tennis and I bet the book's got loads too yeah and of all the skills that Matt clearly has and going back to the very beginning of what we were saying here he's obviously got the hard skills of being a fantastic S&C coach but even having spoken to him it's very clear that he he just manages to play the correct note, whoever he is around, you know, and I'm sure time and time again he's done that with Andy Murray in his corner, whether Andy's two up, two down, you know, picking him off the floor, getting him motivated again. We've seen him do it, 
with the Davis Cup team as a as an integral part of that, who's really getting the crowd going and playing that role. And I have to say, I was just so incredibly touched. But when he when he said that he's listened to, I think he said three quarters of of the different episodes that we've had on the podcast. It meant it meant so much to me and and so much to Vicky. And I think you know when we are sitting putting these episodes together we never quite we see the numbers coming in we can see the thousands of people around the world that are listening but to then actually put a put a face to that and know that these different people that are so high up in the sport uh, are taking value from the podcast is incredible and at this point I also have to give a little shout out to some of the tennis community who we we bumped into in Punta Romano this weekend we had an awesome night of talking tennis. <laughs> yeah, and, and little did we know as we as we went to have a a birthday dinner, and anyone wanting to say happy birthday to Vicky, it was two months ago, <laughs> uh, but we eventually got round to to, the, to that birthday I'll take dinner. It, I'll take it. <laughs> and and we did, and we bumped into Jim May, Gary Drake, Ross Matheson, and Johnny Barr, uh, among amongst others who had been playing an IC match, which is an international club match against a, a club over here in Spain, Puente Romano. Yeah, it was so good to see them and just have some British players here in Spain. It kind of felt like things are kind of getting back to normal a little bit, uh, dare I say it. Yeah, I hope so. Well, certainly one of them was was flying back to the UK today without anything, without any tests, without anything having to happen. So it certainly feels like life is getting back to normal a little bit more, we hope. We hope that doesn't stop you from continuing to listen to podcasts and control the controllables, because our promise is we will continue to bring lots of amazing guests to you. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>